Okay, this morning we're going to read from uh, Job chapter 11, and I'm going to read uh, verse 7. Can you, by searching, find out God? Can you find out the Almighty unto perfection? Verse 8, it is as high as heaven. What can you do? Deeper than hell. What can you know? The measure thereof is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. Notice that? So, can we, apart from God, search him out? Can there be any searching of him? Now we turn to Isaiah, the 40th chapter, verse 28. Isaiah 40, verse 28. It says, have you not known? Have you not known? Have you not heard? That the eternal God, the Lord, notice it says the Lord, all by himself. Again, no one's made him that. He doesn't need anyone to make him Lord. He is Lord. The creator of the ends of the earth faints not. Notice that? Faints not. Neither is weary. Do we faint and do we get weary? Faints not, neither, neither is weary. There is no searching of his understanding. That's that. So none can by searching find out God apart from what we say here in verse 29 of Isaiah 40. He gives power. Who does he give power to? The faint. Do we faint? Yeah. Does God Never. And to them that have no might, no power, nothing, he increases strength. Even the youths will faint and will be eerie, uh, weary. And the young men will utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord, and good, that word wait is synonymous with the word trust, they that wait upon the Lord, upon him, will do what? They will renew their strength. They'll keep getting new portions of strength. They will renew, they will renew their, their strength. They will change. In other words, they'll exchange what they have, fainting and weary, for him who doesn't faint and doesn't get weary, who will give them power. Notice that word power. In Isaiah 40, verse 29. Now here's verse 31. But they that wait, and boy, it's waiting, and boy, is God teaching, teaching me this this morning in my own life. You need to wait. You need to wait. Because in waiting, in waiting, there is a tremendous humility that has to be worked in. There has to be a, a huge decrease in John 3 and verse 30 for us to experience the increase. Many want the increase. They just don't want the decrease in John 3 and verse 30. But they that wait upon the Lord in Isaiah 40, verse 1, they will change their strength. Why does it say their strength? How should I understand Isaiah 40, verse 31? They will exchange their strength. Do we truly have any strength? Outside of God, God's way, God's will, God's word, do we? And we don't. 
Psalm 102, verse 23, it says, He weakens my strength. He weakens my strength. What is the only strength that I have as, an, say, an unsafe person? What is their only strength? Who's the source of their strength? Do they have it themselves? Is God the Father of all those that are outside of Christ in John 8, verse 44? Yes, he is. Yes, he is. He weakens my strength. He shortens my days in the way. That's Psalm 102, verse 23. And so, for us in Christ, what does he have to do as we grow in 2 Peter 3, 18, in grace and knowledge? Notice we grow, and it has to be grace. Who does God give grace to? James 4, 6. 1 Peter 5, uh, verse 6. Again, in James 4, verse 6, speaks of submission in 7. Then we draw near in 8. Then we mourn, but with with a godly sorrow, not a regret, in 2 Corinthians 7.10. And then we get into verse 10 of James 4, where he lifts us up into our position about who we are in Christ, and we see our value. So with strength and power that God can only give, because it only comes from him, there's our value. We test everything by that. We test everything by God's thoughts, not our own. And so he has to weaken our strength. Because really, do we have strength? Where is all strength located? It's in God. How is it manifested to us? In and through Christ. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 24, Christ. What do we need? The power of God. And then once we have power, now we can function in the wisdom that Christ, who is the power, will continually give us. Otherwise, we function and we all do, in the natural. In the natural. Now, the book of Corinthians, those two epistles, the first and second Corinthians, they go into, there's only three people groups. There's the natural, there's the carnal, and there's the man or woman in Christ. A Christian, once he's in Christ, can never, he's never natural again. He can never be because God has made him to be who he is, brand new in Christ in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17. He's brand new. She's brand new. They're brand new. The only way, and when I don't go forward with the preaching and teaching of the word and submission to it on a continual basis, when, if that doesn't happen, the only thing that a Christian can function in is carnality. And what is carnality? It's brought out in Romans, the 8th chapter, in verses 4 through 8. It's in the flesh. The natural man is dead. He's dead. But does that dead man try to live? And the only way he tries to live in the experience is through carnality. And, and because God only deals with us. He only deals with us truly about who we are in Christ. Even when we function in carnality. You can see that in carnality. And a lot of Christians, they, they can be, they, they function in carnality simply because they don't know truth. They don't know positional truth. They've never been taught that. You could be 80 years old. And when you function in carnality, you have your own plans. And you will even use the Word of God as the means by which you believe you're instructed to have your own plans. Fact of the matter is, is there any searching of his understanding? 
Look, look how the enemy keeps the unsaved in bondage. Think about it. Keeps, he keeps them in a fallen, ruined state trying to search for God. What are you going to search with? Think about it. The Christian who functions in the flesh and hasn't been taught about the flesh that's still in us, no matter what false teaching teaches about it, such as one naturism, and, and many that do teach that. The flesh is still in us in Romans 8 9, but we're not of it. The whole battle in Romans, the seventh chapter, it is a man or a woman. They are truly located, positioned in Christ, but their experience is functioning as a man or a woman in the flesh, the natural understanding. And then in that, as a Christian, can you imagine the frustration? Trying as a believer in Christ, position, trying to search those things out with not a proper experience. How frustrating it must be. How intensely frustrating. That's what makes, that literally, that is what makes humility so extremely necessary. There's a reason, again, we need to know these things. That in Psalm 1, we mentioned these things during the week, and, and, and again, if you miss them, they are up on the website. The preaching and teaching, the counsel that God has given us as a local assembly, because, you know, he called us here, that's why we're here. <laughs> and faithful is he who called us, who will also do it in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 24. But can he do it if we don't even receive the counsel that he has for us where he's called us? can't. You can't do it. And so does that limit God? Read this psalm, the 78th psalm, how Israel, as God's own, limited him by continually rejecting what he said, by not coming to hear and not hearing the word. That is a form of rejection. It's rejecting God. It's being satisfied being duped by the atmosphere to function in the natural. And any of us, any of us, can we truly function in the natural again? We can function carnally. And what's that? What's that like? It's functioning just like babies again. Read Hebrews 5, 13 to 15. The enemy wants to convince believers that they only need a certain amount of truth and that's it. And then just function function carnally because you can't be natural anymore because you're in Christ. So just function carnally. You know, Psalm 119, 165 says this. Watch this. And we shared this during the week here. Great peace have they that love your law. Law, for us, is the word. It's the word. Great peace have they that love your, love your word. And nothing will offend you. Why do I get offended? Why do I get offended? I stumble at some truth. Maybe through ignorance or maybe through rebellion. Maybe through that. But we have great peace. Why? Because we are greatly loved by God. He gave us his son who is our peace in Ephesians 2 and verse 14. We've said this before, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Some have termed it the ninefold fruit of the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. The fruit that Christ is is the vine in John 15, 1 through 5. It made it very clear that God, okay, the first, the cause, the cause is God himself who is love, right? First John 4, 8 and 16, God is love. So the fruit of the Holy Spirit, who's God, is what? First thing is what? 
love. Now, when I function in love, okay, and how do I function in love, and how do I know I'm functioning in His love and I'm receiving it? That means I have peace. Because it says in Galatians 5, 22, it says love, right? Then there's joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, meekness, faith, and temperance, which means self is under the control of God the Holy Spirit, not under our own control, our own thoughts, our own aggravations and irritations, and the areas that we get offended in. The area we get offended in, really, is either we are ignorant of truth or we know it and we rebel against it. It's for any of us in the flesh. It's as simple as that. And we're all growing, and growth takes time. But there's no question about when God calls us and he gives us his counsel, it's very necessary, truthfully, that we should feed on it. And we should. So we have great peace because our joy, joy, remember in Psalm 16 in his presence there's the fullness of joy. Is there not? Would I experience joy if I didn't have peace first? No. That's why joy can be up and down. Peace as far as God is concerned with us, is settled. He has peace. He's, he, he is our peace. When it says He is our peace in Ephesians 2 and verse 14, when it says He is our peace who's made both one, broken down the middle wall of petition between us, having abolished in His flesh the enmity, even the, those, those, can, those ordinances contained in all the law, has made in Himself of twain one new man, He's made us new. God has peace with us. Do we have it with him? He's given us peace. But is his peace based upon my thoughts outside of Christ or his thought? Furthermore, who is God's full thought? It's Christ. God only has one thought. It's Christ. There's an order to that too. A continual order. That order is for all of us to continue to receive what he, as our peace, has already done. Now, it says in Psalm 16, 11, there is, there, is, there is joy. In his presence, there's the fullness of joy. And then at his right hand, who sits there, there's pleasures forevermore. God has settled everything about us. So we have peace in Romans 5, verse 1. We have peace with God. Do we experience it? What would get in the way of that? It would be carnal thinking for the believer. Carnal thinking. Thinking, going back and thinking naturally for any of us, truthfully. So we have this great peace. We have great peace with God because he is our peace. What is peace? The peace that God has for us, what is it based on? Is it based, the peace that we have with God, did it have to do with anything that you and I did? It doesn't have a thing to do with it. Because first and foremost, to have peace with God is to understand that God himself need to be propitiated. Not, not only in terms of the whole sin question, but also in terms of our own personal sins. Now for us in Christ, our personal sins and only our personal sins, those that are in Christ, have been dealt with. They're already past tense, they're already dealt with. They're already dealt with. That's why we forgive each other. Why? What are, we, what are we saying? It's dealt with. Christ dealt with it. 
the failure, the sin that we did, the disagreement, the thing. It's not even who we are. It, it's not even who we truly are in his presence. So, again, we have this piece. It's based on God being propitiated. And then him being propitiated, that's again the type. In Genesis 3 and verse 15, for us. But first it had to be to Christ, uh, from Christ to the Father in, in Genesis 22 and verse 8. God will provide himself. Did God need some providing? Did he need to be propitiated? That's speaking propitiation, folks. Folks, that's why. God wants to take us, honestly, I'm just going to be honest, he wants to take us out of the Sunday school mentality and bring us into mature adulthood, thinking with him above everything. He wants to take us out of that. All of us, all of us, to take us out of that. He wants children to grow up to be uh, young men and women and then to grow up into to, to spiritual fatherhood and motherhood and how to function in a local assembly. By the way, there's no proper functioning outside. Boy, I wish I could get that one straight. <laughs> it has to be straightened in me and, and straightened them in that everything about us has to do with the local assembly because the local assembly is the expression of the one body of Christ principle, but in local areas. And when God calls us to a local area, it's to teach us these things that are extremely necessary. We won't have other plans. I don't understand that somehow, I don't understand what, what some Christians think. That it's okay to have plans different from a local assembly where you're called. It's not biblical. I don't care who it is. I don't care how nice they are. I don't care how loving they are. That, what, what more do we need? I remember talking uh, to a certain man. I'm not going to mention any names. But there was this man. He's a pastor. And he knew this young man and knew him for quite a long time. They had deep fellowship together. And this man moved away. This man, particular man, moved away. And in and, and moving away, again, he grew his hair really long. <laughs> okay, now, again, there's no condemnation. There's no accusation. There's no presentation of the Word of God if I have an attitude of accusation and condemnation. It loses all the skill and gentleness that's no longer God because you're not speaking the truth in love in Ephesians 4 and verse 15. But that guy had long hair. And this particular individual talked to him and he said, he said, what about the hair? You know, he said, you know, and they were talking, they had fellowship and intimacy. They really did, you know. And, and he said, so I just wanted to ask you a question. What about the hair? Because is the hair the issue? Or is it something that's inward? It's something that's inward. It's, it is, honestly. Because God gave hair to be long for a woman and for a man to be short. He made that crystal clear. That's why when we see those pictures of Jesus, <laughs> he never had that kind of flowing hair. He just didn't. Never did. He wouldn't tell us not to do something. And then as a man coming as God and a man, do the opposite. But this particular individual asked him, so, okay, I just wanted to ask you, just, uh, what, what about the long hair? And he goes, well, he said, in response to that, uh, that pastor, he said, well, God hasn't told me to cut it yet. And he said, well, 
What does it say in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 14? It is a, it's principle now. I'm not making a big deal out of the hair, but I'm just saying. He said, well, what does it say? When do, how does God speak to us? How do we know His will? It's through His Word. Did God speak? It is a shame for a man to have long hair. <laughs> is that God speaking to us? Is He not speaking that any longer? Okay. How about when we come to hear the Word of God and our own private plans and our own private things that we do and go off on? And, and some have told me, well, I just think it's God's will. Well, I know in Hebrews 10, verse 25, it says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, as is the manner of some is, but do it much more as you see the day approaching. Is that God talking to us? Is there any condemnation when God talks to us? If he talks to us, does he want to get rid of condemnation and guilt? Where would we experience that carnality? Where would we have our own plan separate from the local assembly and the body from carnality and think we're doing it right? I don't understand that. For some, some that I've known for decades and love deeply, deeply have told me that. Don't understand it. Why? You're trying to search God out? If I don't have his word, and he hasn't given to me, and I don't receive it by grace, how do I search him out? The only way I'll search him out is how? In carnality. Live like a natural person, which I'm not. Which I'm not. But still live that way. Still live that way. Listen, here's the facts of the matter. The very, very facts of the matter. Here again, we read, we read Job 11, verse 7. We read this morning Isaiah 40, 28 to 31. Now let's read, and I'm going to read Romans, the 11th chapter. Listen, if you can't search God out, you cannot do it by yourself. If you can't do it by yourself, you have to submit to God's order. You have to submit to God's order. You may not like that order. I am telling you, you must submit to God's order because it's his order. And if whoever the order is that he's using needs correcting, will God do that? He will. But the fact of the matter is, is that we need, we all need to be instructed. And it is in God's order. Here is... Here is Romans 11, verse 32. Now listen to what it says. And I'm going to read right through verse 36. Here's Romans chapter 11, verse 32. For God has concluded, right? God has concluded. He's concluded. You know what concluded means? He shut up all, <laughs> all of us. What does it mean? When he says, for God has shut up all them in unbelief. Now, as a Christian, can I function in unbelief? Yep. The only place I can do that is in the flesh. Is it who I am in Christ? No. But has God shut up the flesh that's in the Christian? Is there any life there at all that they, we can experience? Not a single bit of it. Not a single bit of it. Again, that's why we need, as Christians, to be extremely careful with natural relationships. I want to stress it again. Again. He doesn't, he's not given us 
once he's taken us out of the natural and put us in the supernatural and then put us in local assemblies, do we ever function with natural family apart from a local assembly? We bring them in to the local assembly. That's what we do, period. And if I'm not called to do that, should I do it? And would I be called enough to do it if I don't have enough understanding? And is there any searching him out outside of God's order? You know, God's order is brought out in Ephesians, the fourth chapter. You may look at those 32 verses there and look at God's order. He doesn't have another order. You may look at 1 Corinthians, the 12th chapter, and those 28 verses there. You may look at them. You will see God's order. It hasn't changed at all. To this day, it hasn't changed right now. In this dispensation of grace, this very church age, he hasn't, hasn't changed his order. So God has shut up all them in unbelief that he might have mercy on all. How and who through who? Who is the mercy of God? The mercy seat in Exodus 25 and verse 17 to 22 is brought out and Paul is bringing it out to those Hebrew Christians in Hebrews the fourth chapter in verses 14 to 16. Christ himself is that mercy seat that has done away with all judgment and all the wrath of God even in God's chastening us as his children. In Proverbs 3, 11 and 12, and that starts with preaching and teaching, by the way. That's right. It starts with preaching and teaching. In Proverbs 3, 11 and 12, in Hebrews chapter 12, and look at those, look at those 29 verses there and watch the flow of them. They're very beautiful in the way that they flow. So God has concluded all in unbelief. Why? Why would God do that? Well, because they all were, weren't they? That's right. And now, before I, was, before I became born again in John 3, 3 through 5, where I received Christ in, 3, in John 3 and verse 16, received his love for me in 1 John 4, 9, and now I love him back in 4, 19 of 1 John 4. I love him back. But prior to that, was I an unbeliever? Yes. Was I, under the, was I under the prince and power of the air, Satan, in Ephesians 2, 2? Was I? Yes. Under the father of all lies, in John 8, verse 44, and his loss I would do. Was I not? Yes. And when I, as a Christian who is positioned and now in Christ, don't submit and am not taught and don't understand these things, and I go back into the flesh, what do I go back to? I can never, it can't touch my position, but it goes right to my experience. Then who is affecting my experience when it's not Christ? Who does that? Same thing. Prince and power of the air, Ephesians 2.2, 2, the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. That's right. That's the thing in us, the flesh that's in us that resists all truth. Resist it. Fights it. Because we were so taught in the natural what we were supposed to do, how we were supposed to function. And listen, this morning, I mean this for all of us. No one is being singled out. In, this, in the presence of God, nobody is being singled out. This is God's counsel to us all. Romans 11. So God is... is Shut up all in unbelief. 
that he might have mercy upon all. What is, how should I understand Romans chapter 11, verse 32? I'm going to tell you, this is how. And again, we'll turn, and I'll turn there for you and read it for you. Okay, it's 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In verse 14, now watch this. Watch, watch the action of God's love. Watch this. For 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14. For the love of Christ constrains us. What's the only thing that constrains us? It's his love. How does he manifest his love? Through Christ, his son. Who is his son? He's the word. Filled up in John 1, 14, with all that grace and truth is. The love of Christ constrains us. Now, if I'm in Christ, a brand new creature in Christ in my position in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, and I'm not submitted to him, but I resist and I fight and I argue with him, then what happens? Is his love constraining me, holding me experientially? Is he? No. What's holding me? The flesh. And who's the flesh under there goes the peace, doesn't it, experientially? Now, God has peace with us. We, we said that. God has settled peace with us. Romans 5, 1, Ephesians 2, and verse 14. Peace is settled as far as God. As far as he's, that's why in Job 36 and verse 7, he never removes his eye from the righteous. And, and Christ, in, second, in 1 Corinthians 1, 30, Christ is our righteousness, meaning he is our right standing in the presence of God positionally. But what is my experience? For the love of Christ constrains us. All or just us in Christ, those that are in Christ. Because, what is the cause? Because, it's a cause, God's cause, right? We thus judge, which means we discern, we thus discern that if one who, if one died for all, who did that? Christ. Then we're all dead. What's that mean? All were dead, separated from God in unbelief. All. Weren't we all at one time? Before we received Christ as our Savior? Can we be, now that we're in Christ, when we function in the flesh? Separated from him in our experience. Never in opposition. That's why the Bible teaches us, even sin can't touch our relationship, our position in Christ. That's why Romans 7, 17 and 20, even though we struggle, it is no longer I that do it. Because the I, the, the I is who I am in Christ in Romans 7, 25, brought out in Romans 8, 1 through 39. It is no longer I that do it, but this sin that dwells in me through the flesh and seeks to dwell and take precedence. The soul to take precedence over the spirit. No wonder we need the teaching of the word in Hebrews 4 verse 12 so that those thoughts can be separated. One done away with and one to experience the reality in. So because the love of Christ constrains us, because we thus judge and discern that if one died for all, and he did potentially, then all were dead. And that he died for all. Did he die for all? Yes. But do all live in him? No, it says they, that they, not all, which live should, and, and we live because is Christ our life now? Colossians 3, 4. Galatians 2, 20. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, that old, yet not I, the flesh that likes to take precedence over the spiritual man and who we are in Christ. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me in this life that I now live in this body. I live by the faith, and the faith there is all the teachings 
of the person of Christ and his work. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In 521 of, uh, and 2.21 of Galatians, I do not frustrate or make vain or empty the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, the law of what? Trying to search God out. Through what? Through sin and death? Yeah, because that's what an unbeliever functions in. Unsaved and flesh. <laughs> unsaved and the flesh, unsaved, not born again, and the born again Christian who functions in the flesh. That they, and that he died for all, that they which live should not from now on henceforth live unto themselves. <laughs> their own understanding, their own opinion, their own way of doing it but separated unto him which died for them and rose again. Read the rest of those to verse 21. Listen, there's two ways, and we're going to wrap this up this morning. There's two ways that we look, and this is what God wants us to do this morning. He wants us to look at our relationship to him. God wants us this morning, all of us together. This is God's counsel for all of us as a local assembly. And God forbid. God, God helped those that, that were called here that had plans and didn't <laughs> had other plans than to be here on a continual basis. Some people here, I'm, I'm serious, I see them maybe once every two weeks. And I understand certain ones can't come in person, and God knows that too. And so thank God that we have, we can do these certain things with the technological advancements that God has given us that we can use to his glory and hopefully don't use them for any other way, <laughs> which we all could do. But God wants us to look at our relationship to him and to do it in a right way, to do it in a right way. Because first, what was necessary about our relationship with him? What must we had to have done first? We had to come to him. How many times as an unbeliever did we try everything, right? And it just didn't work, did it? Finally, we had to come to him and receive Christ as our only substitute because we couldn't do it ourselves. We had to come to him. Then as believers that God has called in local assemblies, we need to still come to him to hear the word, to be able to function in a right relationship with him. He never left it for the individual to do it on their own. Never, never did, honestly. He never did. The issue is not whether the person, God loves the person or the person loves God or somehow they're, they're a sweet person. That they, and now because they are, they can have separate plans from a local assembly. I don't know, do you see it anywhere in the scriptures? I mean, I don't. I don't see it. All through the scriptures, from Acts, the second chapter, all the way to Revelations, the third chapter. I don't see a difference in it at all. It's still the same. He hasn't raptured, taken the church up yet. So it's still church order in local assemblies. It's no other way. And in 1 Corinthians 14, 40, God does all things decently and in order. And that order is his local assembly, where we're taught. Boy, I wish we could get that one straight. And then we could have all those other joints that should be supplying, not just for themselves, but for us. We could have their supply. Wouldn't that be something? 
Wouldn't that be awesome? Well, he wants us to look at our relationship with him. We had to come to him first in terms of salvation. We still, and that was God's order, wasn't it? God's order of salvation was Christ. Was there any other order? Now, for us to be taught, do we still have to come to him? Or do we rely on ourselves to search him out? If I don't have the skill, the call, the gift to do so, can I do it? Has God left that up to the individual? Apart from a local assembly. Read about the body. 1 Corinthians, the 12th chapter, we said it. Ephesians, the 4th chapter. He's never called us outside of that. Never did. So we have to come to him. And then, for salvation, I need to come to him. Then, to be taught, we, what do we have to do? We have to come to him so that we can receive his counsels and his dealings towards us through Christ, through the proper preaching and teaching of the word of God. Now, Abel, remember Abel in the type? Genesis, the fourth chapter, Abel, Abel, he realized, both realized this. Abel and Cain were taught by Adam and Eve. Remember in Genesis 3, verse 15? It was, the promise was not given to Adam and Eve. It was given for them, but it was given to Christ. God never promises anything to us when we function in a fallen nature. Never. It was only promised to the one where all the promises of God are yea and amen in 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 20. That promise was Christ in Genesis 3 and verse 15. He had to teach Adam and Eve, you can't do anything. You failed, and in your failure, in your disobedience, you failed, and you still can't do anything about your disobedience. You have to submit your will to Jesus Christ. This is Genesis 3 verse 15. There's order. So Abel, in the type, he had to bring a proper sacrifice. What did he do? He had to come to God with a proper sacrifice. Why? Because God had to teach him like he taught Adam and Eve, like he needs to teach us. We have a need that we cannot fulfill ourselves. We have to come. Salvation? Unsaved? Salvation? Saved, proper preaching and teaching in the local assembly. That we can grow up. We don't have to stay little kids anymore. We can grow up. We can grow up. And God wants us to grow up because he desires a deeper intimacy and a deeper fellowship in that deeper intimacy with us. So he had to bring that. So God had respect unto his gift, did he not? Abel. Did he reject Cain? Yeah. Cain knew he was supposed to worship. He just brought the wrong sacrifice, didn't he? You know what he brought? His own self-sacrifice. Was it based upon his own thoughts? Was it? And if it wasn't God's thoughts, was it God's order? If I'm thinking, is it God's order? Or in my ignorance, do I rebel against those things? Hmm? Do I rebel? Is God, is God, does God want sacrifice without obedience in 1 Samuel 15 and verse 22? No, he requires obedience and not sacrifice. He doesn't want us to skip over it. He doesn't. Because rebellion is this witchcraft and stubbornness 
is idolatry. And I want to tell you where we got all of that, all of us, from the natural. That's what we learned. We have to unlearn that. That's what we're in the process of. We have to unlearn it. And I, I stand here this morning, by the pure grace of God, I stand here, and I'm a Christian first and foremost, a born-again believer. And I'm a husband, but I stand here this morning as a pastor teacher. That's how I stand here this morning. By his pure grace, like we all do, don't we? And don't we gather around Christ in God's proper order? So you can see it in Ephesians 4, 1 through 15. You can even see it. See the flow of it. See the flow. It's not the gifted men. It's not the gifted men and the gifts that they have. But when we function in God's order, that includes it, but it's Christ as our authority. And when I function in proper order, I have God's proper authority. When I have proper authority, I have God loving me, and I have peace. I have it. The peace that's mine positionally now enters into my experience through submission of my will. I don't resist. I don't resist. Imagine trying to resist the devil as a Christian without submission to Christ. That's James 4, 6. God resists the proud. You may think it's the individual. You may think it's their circumstances and situations. God himself resists the proud. Does he resist the pride in those that are his? Yes. Is it because he's against us? Or for us in Christ? God resists the proud, but he gives more grace to who? Those that he's humbled. Therefore, submit yourself, therefore, to God. When you do, then the devil will flee from you because you've, you've submitted to God's order. God's order is Christ. And now it's Christ between you and the devil. And when he sees that in your experience, what do you think he does? He flees because he has to face Christ in you, in your experience. He can't touch the position. He'll go after the experience. So as we close this morning, Abel brought his needed offering. He had a need in him that he couldn't fulfill. That's why it says in Philippians 4 and verse 19, My God will supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. His limitless. We have one need and God has met them through Christ, through his, the riches of a limit. You can't limit the riches that we have for all eternity that we have in Christ. He's getting us ready for eternity. Everything about us is not this earth and time. It isn't. In every single area. Every single area. We must, we must, we have to bring a right offering in our hearts when we come. We need to do that. We must have that sacrifice in us experientially. It's ours positionally, but we must have it experientially for us to be near because we won't even want to be near God. We won't even want to be near each other in fellowship if we don't, if we don't have it. So what does that mean? Well, how is our relationship to be measured? And we're, going, we're closing this very soon. How is our relationship with God to be measured? How do you and I Measure our relationship with God. What's it based on? Our need. We can't meet it ourselves. Not, not as a single individual in Christ, man or woman. 
not in a marriage. Cannot meet that need unless it's Christ between the two. The individual and especially in marriage. There's no question about it. And there's God's order. We have, we have to come near. God has to bring us to the place of self-helplessness and, and hopelessness because we find, don't we? Come on, in all honesty, we just can't do without it, can we? We cannot do without Christ, can we? How did we get to God? Through Christ. How do we keep there? Experientially, through Christ. How's that? Through submission. How's that? Through proper preaching and teaching. <laughs> so, Father, we just are thankful this morning as we begin to close and haven't quite closed yet. We find that we can't do without it. Thank God for James 4, 8. Remember, read, read James 4, 6 and 7. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, draw near to God. How do we draw near to him? Why can we draw near to him? Because we're in Christ, don't, aren't we? We bring the right sacrifice continually. Draw near to God. Result, he'll draw near to you. Then, in your growth and experience, you cleanse your hands, you sinners. And then you purify your hearts, you double-minded. What does double-minded mean? Natural, spiritual. When I am spiritual and humble and God gives me grace, I don't have to search him out, I just receive it. But when I don't, what am I trying to do? I try to search it out. Now there's something that I'm not. There's something the other isn't. There's something is that I have to search out to make it better. Can I? Can I do that? Can I search him out? Didn't we just find out? There's no searching of him. You can't search him out. There's no searching. And so what do we do? We find we can't do without it. So when I accept that offering is needful and that it has accomplished it, will that keep me coming then? If I keep submitting and keep depending on him. Because that is the measure, the measure of our own blessing. God's very blessing to us. That's the measure of our blessing. And we can never know it in terms of experience. We can never know it until we look on our relationships as measured by God's thoughts of us, not our thoughts of ourselves or others. And that has nothing to do with the natural, certainly nothing to do with carnality. 1 Corinthians, the third chapter, read that. Carnality. Carnal. Christians living like they're unsaved. Christians living like they're natural still in an unsaved state. When, because Christ isn't their experience, carnality is. And what's the difference between the flesh that's in us that we're not of in Romans 8, 9 and the unsaved state? You want to tell me there's a difference? No, no. The only difference is Christian can't ever be natural in terms of God's sight, but can he, will he be carnal? Can he be carnal? Yes. And then that carnality and that natural state becomes now his definition and his, and his false image that he or she has to do something about. Our relationship has to do with God's thoughts about us. And in, when he can show it to us, what he's doing is, when he shows it to us experientially, he's showing us his complete and utter satisfaction. He's satisfied in his own mind and emotions 
in grace towards us. Think about that. He himself is satisfied. His own heart is satisfied about who we are in Christ. But who does he give the grace to to experience it? The humble. Who are those? Those that are intreatable. Those that, listen, can be taught. And it's not just when we get together. When we're not, and we, we, we don't always think in terms of the Word of God, but we don't have another mindset as far as God's concerned about who we are in Christ. There just isn't. We enjoy, and we can, but we never enjoy our true blessing unless you and I know how He acts and how He feels, God Himself. And God is bringing us to a place to rise above, to rise above what I think I am in myself to what God is in his thoughts towards me in Christ. It's a world of difference. And so, Father, thank you. Thank you that there's no searching you. And we don't have to anymore. We just continually receive. We just continually receive. Do it again today, yes. Is today just another mundane day? Will we have to submit? Or is it a phenomenal, eternal opportunity? How do we view time? Do we view time, our everyday schedule, apart from God's eternal thoughts? When we do, everything is mundane. We just want to do the best we can to get by. When our eternal destiny is already taken care of and God's working that into us in time, in our time through a submitted will. So, Father, thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.